I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but that was my favorite baby dedication of all time <laughs> in, in history. You know, what a joy it is to be able to, um, together as a family, be able to pray for, to come alongside of, uh, and to walk with uh, babies and their families. And I, I've just seen so many of your kids grow up uh, going to college, getting married, and having kids, so what a blessing it is. Um, you know, we're in the book of First Peter. If you recall, we started that last week, and um, this is what it would have looked like at that time. The Apostle Peter, the preeminent apostle, the church planter and leader, would have written a letter on parchment, and someone would have hand-delivered this letter uh, to various churches in various towns and cities scattered throughout Asia Minor. And when this messenger would come with word from the Apostle Peter, they would be eager to hear what he had to say. Because all of these people, they're first-generation Christians. And Peter, when he wrote to them, did not uh, look at their theology as the preeminent issue that they're dealing with, not unlike the Romans, Roman Christians. Uh, it was not their religion, which was their biggest uh, thing that they were trying to solve, like the Galatians. It wasn't uh, morality, as that was the problem for the first Corinthian church. But really, the biggest overarching thread that uh, the readers of First Peter experienced was that of suffering. When they read this letter together and they, they listened eagerly to the words of their apostle Peter, what struck in their heart is that they were suffering and they were looking for an answer, uh, some words of hope. And I know that suffering is the main theme, the backdrop, because he mentions it so often, First Peter 1, um, 1, you have been grieved by various trials. 2.20, if when you do good and suffer for it. 3.14, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. 4.1, whoever has suffered in the flesh. 4.13, do not be surprised at the fiery trial uh, when it comes upon you. 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian. 4.19, those who suffer according to God's well, Peter assumes, and, and it's true, that these uh, first-generation Christians were having a really, really difficult time. And perhaps that describes you in some way. Uh, perhaps for some of you, it's relationships, people who you thought would be lifelong friends. Somehow there's brokenness and deep abiding fa uh, pain. For others, it's relationships within your own family, a, a spouse, a marriage that you thought we were so madly in love with each other. What happened? A, a child who you thought you loved dearly, but what happened as they grew up, they uh, start saying things to you that you thought, wow, do they hate me that much? Perhaps it's your work. You thought you had a stable career. You worked hard with integrity, and then suddenly the the notice comes and you've been laid off and you're not quite sure how you're going to make the mortgage payment. Perhaps it's your health. You thought you took good care of yourself and the doctors told you otherwise. Perhaps your family. You never thought your parents would grow that old. Peter writes, and last week he talked about in chapter 1 verses 1 through 12 how to hold on to hope in the midst of suffering. And today... In our passage, 
verses 13 through 25, he's going to talk about what Christians, what we need to do in the midst of suffering. And, and if you are, um, if you look at this passage carefully, verses chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, you'll notice uh, that there are these commands or imperatives. And when you read the epistles or letters in the New Testament, uh, there are two kinds of like um, verses. There are uh, indicatives or uh, truth statements. And when you read a truth statement, it is, it is there to design uh, to change your mind and heart but when it gives a command, it is designed to change your action. And so in this passage, there are four commands given, and we're going to go through each one of them. Um, and it goes something like this. Prepare your mind for action. Be different. Have a posture of reverence and genuinely care for others. And let's start with verse 13 in 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope, and that's the imperative, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that Peter tells his readers in the midst of suffering is prepare your mind. Uh, it says to set your hope, but the way that it, uh, one has to do that is to be preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, preparing your minds for action. In the King James Version, the old um, inter, uh, inter, um, translation of uh, the original Greek, they translated this literally by saying that uh, one ought to gird up, your loin, uh, gird up the loins of your uh, mind. Uh, men used to wear long flowing robes at the time, but if they wanted to run or get into a battle or competition, what they would do is they would fold up their robe and tuck it into their belt. And so that's the idea that Peter is communicating that in the midst of suffering, one of the first things that you need to do is prepare your minds for action. If we were to use a modern analogy, it would be something like this, take off your sweats, tie up your shoelaces, because tip-off is now. And he also says, be sober-minded instead of having your minds be dependent upon circumstance which impacts your emotions. Be sober in your mind. You know, um, be one and in verse 13 talks about how we do that by uh, having our hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is this, uh, in the midst of suffering, when, the, when good things happen in your life and bad things happen in your life, if we depend our well-being on circumstances, there will be times when we do well, and there will be times when we are not doing well. Because you see, uh, oftentimes we allow our emotions to lead our well-being, and our emotions are uh, tied to our circumstance. And Peter says, don't do that. But rather, allow your minds to dictate what you're going to be and who you are. And he says that mind ought to be tethered to the truth of the hope that comes by grace of Jesus Christ. Now, let me try to kind of um, talk about this, uh, what, what this uh, may look like. In, um, in the East 
patio and parking lot because of the COVID restrictions. And when our children's ministry were uh, going to start small groups, what we did was we put, uh, uh, put up these canopies on the parking lot so that the kids will, will be able to be in the shade as they have their small groups. Good idea, right? We set those up, and one of the first weeks, there was a, a mild like windstorm in Brea. And uh, during the work week, during the day, we got a call from the gas station saying, hey, your tents are out on the street. So surely enough, we went out, and one of the tents was out, literally, out on Puente. So we realized that um, having good tents was not enough. We needed to tether them. We need to uh, tie them, anchor them to something that will not move. And so if you go out there now, uh, the tents, the canopies have sandbags and weights, and they're strapped to the fence, which will not move. Peter is saying, don't let your, uh, your well-being be tied, tethered to circumstance, but rather the truth of grace. What does that look like? If we really believe, listen, as Christians, that we were saved and sanctified by grace, grace is this, that it's not how good we were, it's not how religious we were, but really just the grace, the gift of Jesus Christ that saved us, that's going to make a world of difference regardless of circumstance. You see, if we believe that it was because how good I was, when things are going well, we become arrogant. And when things aren't going well, we believe, oh, I'm so discouraged and I'm, I'm in despair. Grace says it's not because I was good that God was good to me. God is good regardless of whether I was good or not. And when things aren't going well, I'm, I'm not so discouraged. And in terms of how we relate to people, it's the same thing. You know, if we believe that it is by our own merits, when we see others not doing well or when we see others in sin or others who hurt us, we think, what's wrong with that person? But if we understand and if our minds are tethered to grace, we know that that person, just like me, needs to be saved and sanctified by grace. So the first thing that Peter says to the Christians in terms of what we need to do is we need to prepare our minds. Secondly, we find in verses 14 through 16, and the idea is to be different or holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He says it in the negative. In verses 15 and 16, he says it in the positive. And as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He says that you were, first of all, children of obedience, as opposed to what you were before. Uh, uh, as an unbeliever, you were children of disobedience. And it, when you were children of disobedience, you were conformed to something. You followed something. You imitated something. You followed something. And what was that that you followed? It says the passions of your former Ignorance. I, I love that phrase. If you kind of think about it, what is that passion? Um, it is that which your body, your eyes, and your ego wants to do without any inhibition. Especially, as it says, uh, the ignorance that was with you. So there's no... Um, there is no moral or spiritual filter or inhibition, but whatever you, your body wants, whatever your, your eyes want, whatever your ego wants, you chase after. 
So a person sees another individual who's not their spouse and their body, their eyes, and their ego lusts after them and they take on this, uh, this passion of ignorance. Just do it. Follow your passion. Uh, just live fully. And Peter says to them, don't be that person. Not only that, he says, be holy in everything, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He says that, in, uh, that we need to be holy because in essence, uh, and, and the base term holy hagias means to be different, by the way. It says be different. Be different from what? If we are children of disobedience and we are not children of obedience, what we need to do and how we're different is that we're different from those who are still children of disobedience. And if he calls us to be exiles, he says, you ought to be different from the culture that you are a part of. You know, one of the things that we think about, especially those who grew up in the church and those, especially those who kind of um, didn't grow up in the church and, but, but sees the, the church from uh, what the, how the media kind of uh, portrays the church, they, they think of holiness in terms of cultural issues, so, uh, such as, well, churches and Christians are against same-sex marriage, and churches are against uh, the legalization of uh, uh, recreational uh, drugs. The church is against um, uh, rock music or witchcraft. So being holy meant isolating oneself from the culture and battling culture every step of the way. I remember raising my girls up and uh, there was that time when Harry Potter books were all the rage. And there were some corners of the Christian world, uh, the church that says, you know, they, uh, Harry Potter is all about witchcraft. Christians shouldn't read, Christians should not read Harry Potter. Confession here, I read every Harry Potter book. <laughs> and we went to watch every Harry Potter movie just to make sure that it was okay. You know, what's, what's interesting is that God sees holiness in a different light than our culture or even our church sees holiness. When Peter says, be holy as it is written, um, uh, this, this will give you a clue that there, somewhere along the line uh, that was written. And Peter is quoting from it, and it is true. In the book of Leviticus, and if you're not familiar with Leviticus, it's the book that when you make a decision to read through the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus, and you become completely lost, you give up. That's the book, right? It's the book that has a lot of do's and don'ts. In the midst of it, in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, and, and, and the, the, the phrase, be holy for I am holy, is mentioned three times in the book of Leviticus, uh, in 1145, 19.2, and 27. Okay? Now, in chapter 19, when God is speaking to the Hebrew people, as he's saying, you know, you're going to be a, a new nation, you're going to be a holy nation, a different nation, and, and listen carefully, Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, um, am holy. It sounds official, doesn't it? Okay, you're like, raise up, you're going to be holy. 
And you would think that what will follow that verse is, okay, now, now, now don't, don't read Harry Potter. Don't listen to Stairway to Heaven reverse because it has, right? Older, older people, you know what I'm talking about, right? I, I, I got rid of my album. I feel so sad. But in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 3 and 4, right after having said that, this is what holiness looks like. This is how God paints what holiness looks like to the people who are going to be holy. Different. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. That's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3. And you shall keep my Sabbath, and I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. It's interesting when God says, you need to be holy, you need to be different. One of the first things that he says is be good to your parents. Honor your parents. Now, this isn't just a subliminal way this Asian parent is, is trying to indoctrinate you. This is God's word. This is, how, this, this is what holiness looks like. When the culture says, um, forget about your parents, God says, honor your parents. It says that, that one day a week you need to uh, set aside to rest and worship the Lord. It says you can have a lot of things that you really like, but the preeminent thing must be God, must be me. And what is fascinating is Leviticus chapter 19, verses 10, uh, 9 and 10. So right, right there in terms of what God says, this is what holiness looks like. I want you to listen carefully now, okay? It's the passage we probably haven't gone over. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This is what holiness looks like when God is speaking to the nation of Israel. When people walk through the land... And they see fields uh, owned by uh, the non-holy people. You'll, they'll notice that they, they harvested right up to the edge of the land, right into the corner, so they would maximize their profits. But when they walk past a, a field owned by the holy nation of Israel, what they should see are the corners unharvested and the edges unharvested. And people will ask, well, why are they not maximizing their profits? It's because they were called to be different. That you are not a people who should uh, look out to see how rich can I get, but rather how systematically compassionate you can be. You know, uh, it does not say that that God's people, holy people, cannot be wealthy, but it says the, the more wealth God gives you, the more edges and the more corners you should make available for people who are in need. Holiness sounds very different, doesn't it? You know, one of the ways in which oftentimes Christians try to cope with a, a vastly secular, anti-Christian world, a community, a culture, is to try to assimilate. We try to be just like so that we can have more likes and we can have more followers. We can be more accepted. The scripture says, be different. Don't be like your former self. Don't be like the culture. When the world says, forget about your parents, you honor them. 
when the world says, uh, make most of your time, and says, no, take one day of the week just for God. When the world says, uh, follow your passion and dreams, no, no, God says, your preeminent passion must be me. When the, when the world says, maximize your profits, pile up your gold, he says, no, no, make sure that you systematically are caring for those who are in need. That's holiness. Let's go to the third command. It's found in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartiality, impartially according to one's, uh, each one's deeds, and here's the command, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. When you are in exile, when you are a foreigner, there will be this temptation, this pressure to fear, to look good in front of culture. You don't want to say anything, do anything that will offend or lose your popularity. But what God says, what Peter says to Christians is this. Instead of that, instead of fearing people, fear or revere, honor your God. The one who actually ultimately judges. He continues in verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I want you to, to hold that thought that he says, um, the reason why you should conduct yourselves with fear is because you were at one time ransomed or bought, not with like all the money in the world, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, I want you to just hold that thought. Um, you know, because of COVID, one of, this, um, one of the ethical questions that's being discussed behind the scene, not really publicly, is how much is a human life worth? Okay, let, let me kind of explain what I mean by this. Because governments all across the world are having to shut down their economy. Millions and millions of people are, are losing income, losing their home, becoming poor in order to save a life or lives of people. So uh, people quietly are asking the question, well, what is a life worth? Is it, is it $1,000? If, if people can all become poorer, $1,000, is that worth saving one life? Is it a million dollars? Is it a billion dollars? It's an, actually a good question. And also, does it make a difference if that life that we're trying to save is old or young in our geography or a, a geography that's far from us? Does it matter uh, the ethnicity of that person or if that person has any disability or, or gender? Does any of that matter? You know, we may say, theoretically, Oh, that's a silly question. Every life is pr uh, precious and priceless. I think that's what most of us would like to say. But I'm going to say something that um, is controversial. Uh, and, and you can email me later, and I'll, I'll send it to some other smart person. But I'm going to say this, that uh, although we may intellectually debate this as a policy, it is impossible to say that any human life has certain intrinsic value, okay? Now, I just said something. Does a human life 
is it worth a thousand dollars, a million dollar, a billion dollar? We may say, well, no, it's priceless. It's it's, it's priceless. Well, it's, it's not true because none of us, the world doesn't operate that way. If every human life is precious, we would give all of ourselves in order to save the one life uh, that, that we don't even see or know halfway around the world, but we don't operate that way. But let me say this. I do not believe a human life is intrinsically valuable, but a human life has assigned value depending on the person who's willing to pay or, or, or spend the cost for that life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, like with anything, a piece of art, um, a, an old car is only as valuable as one is willing to pay for it. So, um, as you know, um, I recently became a grandfather, right? And it, I, I'll, I'll be honest, it's been so, so fun. And, um, you know, we really enjoy watching our grandson. And last week, we uh, were babysitting our grandson. We gave, my wife and I gave uh, our, our grandson, Evan, a bath and, you know, shampooed his hair and, and soaped him up and rinsed him all down. And he was nice and squeaky clean. And after he was completely clean, I held him up so proud, my wife and I, and I felt something warm right here. And he was just peeing right on me. <laughs> but you know, it was really strange. Um, instead of getting frustrated or angry or impatient, my wife and I both just laughed. He peed on us. Oh my gosh. <laughs> was the cutest thing. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I, I know my wife and, uh, you know, like, we have to remind ourselves. Well, my grandson's not our son, but I have to say, hey, a quarter of him has my image. If someone were to ask how valuable uh, my grandson is to me, I would say, well, if his life is in danger, I would give everything in order to save his life. There would not even be a, a doubt, a hesitation. I would give everything, everything I own, and even my own life. That's the assigned value because my love, our love for my grandson, our grandson. You know, we, we, we hold our grandchild and my wife and I, we can't believe how much love we have for this child. And, and I want you to think with me, you know how like, like stupid you are at times? When God looks at you, he somehow sees someone so valuable and precious and lovable not because of anything inherent or intrinsic that we have, but somehow God sees his image in you. And he says, I love you to the point where you are more valuable to him than all the precious gold and silver, but, and he bought you, he ransomed you back with his precious blood. And so this is the, the the strange enigma that we are in and who we are, that we are at the same time completely worthless because we have no intrinsic value on of our own, but at the same time completely priceless because that's the love that God sees us with. 
And so, instead of fearing the world, it says, fear the Lord who gave himself for you. And let me give you my fourth imperative that's found in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your disobedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here it is. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the fourth command is that we need to genuinely care for others. Knowing that you have been born again, you are new. That your newness is not dependent on circumstances or quality of the people that you're interacting with. But rather, the newness is confirmed by the truth of the unchanging word of God. He says, do this. This is the fourth thing. And listen, so far, I've been talking about what Christians do in terms of defense. This is the offense. We got the ball back, and now we're playing offense. Do this. Love one another. And he says, don't fake love, but rather earnestly love. And don't love in order to gain something from them, but love with a pure heart. This is how Christians play offense. You know, one of the problems that the church has had, uh, especially because, uh, like I said before last week, uh, uh, the United States, it, it, it has a sister in Judeo-Christian ethics or, or culture. And uh, the church in America has oftentimes majored on morality, meaning uh, we're so busy trying to make America a Christian nation that we felt like, the church felt like it needs to police morality and that became its major and love become, became a distant minor. When missionaries first came to uh, my home country that I grew up in, Korea, the early missionaries gave their lives. The first things that they set up were not moral schools, but hospitals and orphanages. They simply want love. But what's happened in America is that we've majored on morality and judging people, and we've minored, if at all, maybe it's just elective courses on love. I want you to notice what Jesus does. When a woman who is brought before Jesus and she's obviously an immoral person, Jesus doesn't ask about her sins, her lifestyle, but he simply loves and accepts. And one of the criticisms that Jesus faced often is that he's a friend of sinners. He's hanging out with sinners. What's wrong with him? When Jesus encounters people of all walks of life. He does not ask whether, uh, what ethnicity are you, or what socioeconomic class are you, or uh, what is your, uh, your, your health, but he simply listened and touches and cares. When Jesus encounters the broken, he does not question their legal status in the country, whether they are a member of a particular church or their political affiliation, he simply loves. John says that love covers a multitude of sin. Listen, if you are not sure how to respond in a world that is broken, you don't, you're not quite sure what, what you ought to do when the church is persecuted. You're not quite sure what to do when your kids are at school and, and it's clear that the school is anti-Christian and you're not quite sure at work how to, you know, how to navigate in that hostile world. Um, major on loving. 
major just on loving people and minor on, on everything else. You know, the good news is that Jesus did that for us. He did not say, well, how good are you? What ethnicity, what socioeconomic class? How, how much have you read the Bible and, and have you tithed? But he simply loved. And he won us over through love. And perhaps that's what Peter is saying to the suffering Christians scattered abroad in, in, in a world that is increasingly hostile to them. Fervently love, if you forget everything else, fervently love because that's what Christ did for you. Can I pray for us? Lord Jesus, I thank you. And if there's anyone here who still does not and have not experienced the love of Christ, would they even today by, um, by acknowledging and praying and calling out to you saying, Lord, I know that I'm sinful and I need your grace because I don't deserve anything more. Lord, would you have grace on me Forgive me for my sins because you paid the price on the cross. Make me a Christian. Make me a new person, a child of obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.